I'm Dr. Kimberly Manning. And this is Dr. Ashley McMullen. And you're listening to the Human Doctor Podcast, where we explore the human side of medicine, along with teaching, living, learning, and all things in between. Using the power of storytelling, conversation, and connectedness. Hey, we're two dope academic internal medicine doctors, but we ain't your doctors. So if you perceive anything we say here as medical advice, no, it ain't that. Also, the things we say, they only reflect our brilliant black woman magic mind and not our employers. You could have been anywhere, y'all, but you chose to be here with us and we appreciate you. Let's Let's go. go. All right, let's get it started. How are you this evening? Oh man, how am I? Let me see. On a scale of one to five, I'm about a 4.2. Uh, in the words of motivational interviewing, why not a five? <laughs> Look at you with a teachable moment. Exactly. Um, exactly. Let me see. I'm not a five because I still have a lot of little things um, sort of prickling at me in my personal life with my loved one who is somewhat improving, but is still, you know, really tough to think about every day. And also because I messed up something with my schedule last week, which I mean, to be clear, I'm at, I've, I've forgiven myself for it, but I just hate when I make a mistake and it involves other human beings. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't, it was not a medical error or anything like that, but it was a scheduling uh, mess up because of an email that I missed when I was away um, supporting my loved one. But all of this reminds me of one of my favorite quotes. And I don't even know who to attribute it to. I know I heard Oprah say it one time, but I don't know if it's her quote. Um, So, um, but the quote is, we are not our mistakes. We are our possibilities. Mm. And I have that written on my office door to remind myself, we are not our mistakes. We are our possibilities. Mm. So we can, like last week when we said you can course correct. Yeah. I'm I'm out here trying to course correct. So. Dope. (laughs) <laughs> write that on my mirror in the morning. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Attributed to maybe Oprah. <laughs> <laughs> my way of Kimberly Manning. That's right. That's right. That's right. Cool. All right. I do actually have something else to share outside of this look that Mahalia has. Y'all, you know, Mahalia is a celebrity. I just be talking about her all the time, but y'all, she's kind of pulled up on one side. We got a headband. The twist out is still kind of going and it looks really good. Thank you. This is my version of whatever the messy bun is. Uh, oh, yeah. This is surely what I woke up <laughs> looking like this morning during my work from home day. But I also want to affirm like Jules always keeps it classy. You know, I, I appreciate no. the fact that she always comes through. Yeah. You know, she she tried to do a little something on most mm-hmm. days, you know, a little something, yeah. something. OK, sure. I do have one last thing. Okay. Um, I think a lot now about pelvic floor muscles. On the heels of Mother's Day and as somebody who had both a nine pound, two ounce baby and an eight pound baby by non-cesarean delivery, (laughs) I know about pelvic floor muscles changing. And so one of the really interesting things I learned about, and I can't say I learned it this week, but um, but it works, is this technique called the freeze and squeeze. Do you know about this? Uh, No, ma'am. Oh, okay. Okay. This will be helpful to your patients. Okay. And now- I'm not, I don't have all the lingo down well enough to tell you exactly what happens with smooth muscle and all that good stuff. And, but here's what happens. So if, if you feel like you need to um, go to the restroom, like, you know, how, when you are coming home from work and you pull in your driveway, Mm -hmm. you really, really have to go. 
usually the first instinct is to run for the bathroom. But that's actually one of the worst things that you can do, which you should do is stop in your tracks and squeeze your pelvic floor muscles like four or five times really fast. And then what that does is it almost hits a reset button and it offers you about 10 to 15 seconds to walk to the bathroom. Oh, wow. It really works. So um, I've been increasing my water intake lately. And so the freeze and squeeze has really been very important in my world. And if this is TMI, you know, for you, you know what? (laughs) If you are he for she or she for she, you need to be thinking about this because the struggle is real. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, so the freeze and squeeze. But I've told my patients this, too, and this is more than just telling people to do kegels to strengthen Mm -hmm. their floor muscles. This is about if you don't want to have an accident and you want to make it to the bathroom or not do the bunny hop, just stop what you're doing. Stand still. Squeeze five times real fast. and then walk to the bathroom. Mm. And this is even if the bathroom is like less than 10 seconds away, you just. Yes. Because the thing about weak pelvic floor muscles is that if you do not have strong enough pelvic floor muscles to stop the bladder from emptying for some people, once they start emptying their bladder, it's just nothing they can do. So you need to not get to that point. Yes. And this is so prevalent with people that I know for absolute sure there is somebody who is listening to this who is going to be freezing and squeezing this week. And they're going to be like, OMG, (laughs) what I learned on the Human Doctor podcast. Thank you, Dr. Manning, to which I say in advance, ciao, you're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Freeze and squeeze, boo. (laughs) Freeze and squeeze. All right. So um, party people. It is your lucky week and you all know what your lucky week means. (laughs) It means that the world famous ACP speaking UCSF trained former chief resident, now faculty. um, I'll think of more things, (laughs) but uh, um, (laughs) the Ashley McMullen will be telling y'all a story and I We'll be chilling in the cut, drinking out of my public radio nerd mug and listening. And you really, you really set the standard. I mean, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm here to, I'm here to fan your flames. <laughs> what I'm here to do. Yeah. You know, I, I feel like world renowned is maybe like, you know, a little loose of a term, but we'll, we'll, we'll roll with that. We'll speak that into future existence. <laughs> in my world, it depends on whose world you're talking about. <laughs> in my world, baby, you renowned. <laughs> So the question is, what is the what? The what for this episode will be palliation. Palliation. Mm-hmm. Look at you. Okay. It's a flex. I know, right? I feel like we've just been escalating the vocabulary this season. Oh, I know. I know. Um, palliation. I like that. I like see if that. we can keep it going. But this story was one that came to mind actually uh, a couple weeks ago. You had posted a tweet that was kind of like an ode to palliative care. Mm-hmm. And it got me thinking about the roles that palliative care has played not only in my education, but also in my life. And I figured I might speak to that on this episode. So this story, like several stories that I've told, actually centers around my experience with my grandmother, which I got to tell y'all, I'm going to keep telling these stories. So (laughs) if you're rolling your eyes, talking about, you know, why she always bringing up the same experience, I've got more in my pocket. So hold tight. 
But this story specifically came about from the time where we, or at least, you know, I could say where I personally had kind of come to terms with the fact that, you know, what I had hoped for an outcome that she might, you know, recover and and stay with us for, you know, however much longer wasn't going to be the case. Just to remind folks in fall of 2020, I was at home and my grandmother had a massive stroke. Uh, I was a right MCA, but then also who was found to have um, some infarcts in her cerebellar territory as well. So, you know, given the trajectory, this was after about a week in the hospital that had concluded with her getting intubated for airway protection and scans that were looking worse and worse. It seemed like, you know, there was no way, or at least the odds were very, very minuscule that she was going to make it through that event um, without being completely dependent, which I knew from knowing her and based on what she told me was something that she would never want. So I was having this conversation with one of the hospitalist attendings who was managing her care in the ICU, you know, as he's relaying this information to me, I'm taking it back in. And it was just me because at the time there was only one person allowed at the bedside. So I asked if they could consult palliative care so that I could talk to them as well and have them talk to my family. And the response from the attending was, we don't have a palliative care service. Essentially, when folks wanted to transition to comfort care, they would call the hospice team and the hospice doctor would start hospice in, in-house and, you know, kind of take over care from there. So that was the first lesson that I learned coming out of my training at UCSF was that, yeah, palliative care is not a given. <laughs> and this was not a small community hospital. You know, it wasn't in the medical center, but it was a pretty comprehensive regional health center. Like it, they had a stroke center, they had a cath lab, like basically everything that one needed minus palliative care. So that night I had had a a good conversation with my grandfather and my mom as well, and came to the conclusion among the three of us that we were going to sign the orders for DNR, DNI, remove the ventilator and uh, transition her to to comfort care and, and hopefully get her home on hospice. We had family who had flown in at that time and had only recently gone to see her in the the hospital and really kind of taken in the experience of what was happening more so than, you know, really translates over the phone. And so um, we decided to kind of gather together at my grandfather's house that evening. And he wanted to share with everybody kind of the plan to try to get her home on hospice. And, you know, I got to say, in hindsight, there are many ways in which that conversation could have gone better. I think that the hope was to kind of explain our thinking and kind of get everybody on board and kind of a, maybe like a dialogue of sorts. But the, the, the direction it went was essentially my grandfather telling everybody that this is what we were going to do. So it wasn't exactly a conversation. I would say that it was pretty awkward. And yeah, it was hard. I think. And this know, was all family? This was all just family. Okay. Yeah. And so there wasn't a lot of dialogue. There weren't, there weren't a lot of questions raised. It was actually just a lot of uncomfortable silence. So after we kind of dispersed, a couple of us were outside in the backyard, just kind of taking it all in. And someone in my family, an older relative had asked about, you know, what would happen with the feeding tube? Because up until this point, she'd been getting nutrition through an NG tube. And reflexively, I just kind of made the statement like, of course, we're going to take the feeding tube out. 
<laughs> you know, as a resident, I've had these conversations with families many a time, but I guess it never occurred to me what it would, what that would look like with my own family. Um, in part because, you know, I didn't see myself as a physician in that conversation. I was someone who loved my grandmother as much as everybody else and wanted what was best for her. But in that moment, I kind of shifted or to where I felt like outside of my family. I felt like a healthcare provider and I was immediately on the defense because that notion that seemed obvious to me was not the case for other relatives. It got pretty heated. <laughs> and um, yeah, I felt really alone in that moment. Nobody really came to my defense, you know, for a while, I thought that after all was said and done, that particular family member was never going to speak to me again. Mm. And so I left, I just, I like left the house and just went for a walk through the neighborhood. Thankfully, while the conversation was tense, it wasn't malicious or mean. It was just, there wasn't a seeing of eye to eye. And I also recognize and acknowledge my, my role in that. And that I just kind of took for granted the fact that not everybody is coming at this from my place of understanding. And so I ended up sitting at a park nearby. It was like 9 p.m. And I was just kind of like swirling in my mind. just like, oh, shit, like what just happened? Like, how is this going to go down now? And so I was trying to figure out like who to talk to. <laughs> I ended up calling my friend. I'll give a shout out here to Dr. Kareen Davila, who's actually on faculty at MGH, but at the time was a palliative fellow in their program. She was also once my intern. And of course she picked up and I was just like, look, I just had a pretty tough conversation with my family. Could use a little advice specifically around removing feeding tubes and stuff in these situations. And she was just like, oh yeah, like this comes up all the time. Mm you know, emailed me all good information and different like tips and strategies for how to address a lot of the common fears and conceptions that come up around stopping feeding when a person is nearing death. And I was just like, shit, I wish that I had been more thoughtful about this earlier. And so I had a chance to reflect and, and look at some of the stuff that she had sent me. I sent that family member a text message before I went to sleep apologizing and also adding a little bit more context based on some of the information that I had and offered to talk more. And their response was also gracious and, mm -hmm. and apologetic. The next day was when I had planned to go up to the hospital and be present when they took my grandmother off life support and mm -hmm. without any real sense of what would happen afterwards. Yeah. And that was scary. Yeah. But I remember that feeling. I think it's a lot like what you described as having like this sense of mission or discernment. I woke up that morning having prayed a lot that night for some strength. And I woke up with this kind of like supernatural sense of calm. Because mm -hmm. um, I fully anticipated that I was going to go through this alone. And when I got to my grandmother's room, that family member who I'd had the tension with was already there. Mm. And we hugged and we stood there together as they removed the ventilator. And, you know, thankfully she was able to protect her airway still, but it was a lot of like discomfort and secretions in part because actually the, the tube feeding had backed up into her lungs. None of the physicians on her primary team came into the room that morning. 
as soon as they heard that she was transitioning to hospice, it was like, that's it. The hospice doctor, there's one person who's making rounds. So he wasn't there yet. And so it was kind of on me Mm. to ask the nurses for medications to help ease her suffering. Wow. In the moment, of course, I was just very in that mode, but on the back end, I was just like, thank God (laughs) that some aspect of palliative care was part of our internal medicine training. Cause otherwise, you know, I'm not sure what would have happened. So she got some morphine, some Lasix to, to draw off some of the fluid. And so the next couple of days, she actually stabilized quite a bit and we were able to transition her home. Wow. And she was at home for, I think about a week. Wow. I didn't know she was there that long. Yeah. And we had relatives who came in from Chicago. We were able to set up Zoom calls. Like everybody was able to spend time with her and say goodbye. You know, when she was in the hospital, her blood pressure was up and down. It was really tense. And it was like, once she was at home, (laughs) it was just so peaceful. Mm. And I can't describe a better combination of grief and beauty and love and pain just all held together in one space. And, you know, it was a day by day thing. We weren't sure when she was going to pass. And so it was just kind of this suspension of everything else that didn't really matter and just family and loved ones being present with each other Mm. every day up until the moment where she took her last breath. Mm. So yeah, shout out to palliative care. Mm -hmm. Yep. (laughs) You know, I learned so many lessons as I continue to learn, (laughs) reflecting on the many stories that came out of that experience, but specifically how grateful I am to have colleagues in a field that really embodies humanism Mm. in like everything that they do. Mm. Mm. I love that. I love that the word you chose was palliation because, you know, it makes me realize that they don't just offer palliative care to the patient. They offer palliative care to the family and also to the primary team. Mm -hmm. Um, and in this situation, you were the primary team. So yeah, shout out to them. I mean, I think when I was tweeting about that, that day, I I was in the hospital taking care of a patient and shout out to Dr. Janelle Holder, who came in and went through line by line, this patient's chart and just stepped in with all of these recommendations that were things I I really wasn't thinking about. And, and I shouldn't be thinking about all of those things because there is a whole fellowship in palliative care <laughs> and whole expertise. So I don't know why we act stunned when they add something. We're like, um, because this is a whole like board yeah. certification process. So I, I think that sometimes we, we learn in residency about some things being soft skills. Mm-hmm. And so palliative care seems to kind of fall into this humanism bucket of soft skills but there's nothing more important than offering somebody a death with dignity. Absolutely. There's nothing more important than figuring out how as a healthcare worker to step into the fellowship of suffering with somebody and allow that to be a process that isn't made more painful by our awkward presence. Mm -hmm. 
And yeah. palliative, palliative care knows how to do that. Man. <laughs> I'm saying. Mm, yeah. I, I don't, I don't know that uh, in all this time, I don't know that I realized that your grandmother made it home. That makes me so happy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, this sort of peacefulness um, that you described that she had, I think the older you get and the more you see people as they near the end of life, the more you will see things like that. Like when the person is ready and they feel like everybody's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the kids, all right, everybody good. Okay. I did a good job raising y'all. I'm out. Exactly. Um, because it's not necessarily like anything like dramatic in the moment that happens. It's, it's fascinating when you see somebody just, they get permission to go and they're like, all right. Yeah. It was such a privilege to witness. Mm-hmm. There's this, um, this song It's called what Sarah said. And the very last line of the song, the lyrics kind of allude to the process of, of losing a loved one. And mm-hmm. the last line says, love is watching someone die. Ooh. Which I was like, okay, at the beginning, before I, before all this happened, those lyrics were just like, you know, maybe a little morbid, <laughs> but I recognize like, yeah, there, that, that is a loving experience to, to witness and be present with someone as they transition. Mm-hmm. I love that. I'm thinking a lot about what we do in the continuum, not just as healthcare workers, but as loved ones. And it's, it's so important, man. You know, these, these people who, who take care of us when we're young and we are like helpless, you know, we, we just owe it to these folks when we get older, you know, to return a favor. And, um, but sometimes um, our will alone isn't enough. And, um, and I, and I like to think that that's where our, our palliative care, our hospice and palliative care colleagues come in um, and, and recognizing that palliative care is about more than helping um, people to die with dignity, but more helping people to not suffer. Yeah. I, I, I just, feel like as time goes by and the more I take care of patients and the older I get and think about my loved ones and what I want for them, the more I appreciate what hospice and palliative care physicians do. So shout out out to y'all, man. Yes. Now somebody probably thinks we about to go do a palliative care um, fellowship. (laughs) Nah, I am done with all training. But shout out to those who are taking that path. And that's right. Career. That's right. We do appreciate that you're doing it and you will have consults from us. That's yes. for sure. Amen. Because yeah, we, we need we need all the help we can get. So um, <laughs> I, I can listen to you talk about your grandmother a thousand times and then a thousand more times after that, because it is the best way as somebody who loves you um, to be introduced to her. Mm. And with every story, I feel like I know her better. And um, I believe that we should talk about people, not like it's some taboo thing to bring them up. Keep introducing the people you love to the people you love. Well, thank you, sis. Uh, And I will take you up on that. (laughs) All right. right. I'll be ready. I'll be ready. Love you. Love you too. That wraps up this week's episode of the Human Doctor Podcast. Special thanks to our favorite brother gastroenterologist, Dr. Chuma Obiname for the beats. Shout out to the Dr. Ashley McMullen for editing and production 
Mad love to our podcast family at The Nocturnist and The Clinical Problem Solvers, our med Twitter fam, and especially shout out to all of you, our listeners. Until next week, remember, we see you and you are enough. Holla! Holla.